Welcome to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. In this season of the Dutch Podcast, you'll hear from some of the brightest minds in integrative healthcare as we share new perspectives on hormones and challenge a few common misconceptions you might have heard in some circles. We'll bring you cutting-edge education ranging from beginner level to advanced, along with the validated research to back it up. Be prepared to think differently and deepen your understanding of how functional hormone testing can profoundly change the lives of patients. This week's episode is a juicy one. You are going to want to be sitting down with pen and paper and really soaking in all the updates about the HPA axis. This week's guest is Dr. Tom Williams. He is an HPA access expert, and this episode covers so many reframes of things like broken concepts, things that are outdated, and just new ways to think about the HPA access and how it impacts health. Expand, you know, it took a while to expand people back from the adrenal to the HPA axis, and now I'm trying to make them understand the HPA axis beyond stress. Thinking about cortisol, where we talk about cortisol as being kind of bad and being just a response to stress, but actually cortisol is so important for regulating the health of our cells. And the problem comes when we mess that pattern up. Expressing high levels of cortisol caused the brain to realize that this is not gonna help long-term. And so it begins down-regulating, uh, the, you know, down-regulating the expression of cortisol in certain situations and cells become cortisol resistant in some cases. And really you're gonna walk away thinking about cortisol completely differently. Also, how to test the HPA axis. If you're doing just a diurnal curve, you're gonna to wanna to listen to this episode to learn more about all of the different ways that you can measure the function of the HPA axis and really get the best information for your patients. Finally, another big takeaway is around DHEA. DHEA is not just an anything hormone, it is directly related as a compensatory kind of break system for cortisol. So Dr. Tom talks all about that as well. You are going to get so much out of this episode. Let's just dive in. Tom Williams, PhD, serves as an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy. For the past two decades, he's spent his time investigating the mechanisms and actions of lifestyle and nutrient-based therapies, and he's an expert in the therapeutic uses of dietary supplements. Since 2014, he's been writing a series of teaching manuals that outline and evaluate the principles and protocols that are fundamental to the functional and integrative medical community. Tom is also the founder and director of the Point Institute, an independent research and publishing organization that facilitates the distribution of his many publications. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, glad to be with you, Jacqueline. And I'm really excited to be able to pick your brain a little bit about the HPA axis because one, this is so fundamentally important for overall health. And I think now we're starting to hear the media talk a little bit more about stress and the fact that it actually does change your physiology in so many ways. But I also think it's an area of massive confusion for both consumers and for providers. I mean, do you agree? People get kind of shocked when you start to teach them a little bit more about it. Yeah. Well, I think everybody, I think if we use the generic word stress, people obviously realize that that affects their health. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But when you start, like when you said, like when you start getting into, well, how does this actually affect your health and what's going on? Um, a lot of popular 
conceptions, a lot of popular misconceptions, probably the one that, you know, we've, we've been bantering around for a long time, this notion of adrenal fatigue um, and kind of like your adrenals sort of give out. And therefore that creates this additional stress or, or the inability to deal with stress. And I think that, which I think is mischaracterized, um, but it became very popular, kind of an easy way to think of something that just wears out in your body, your adrenal glands. And, and so re trying to reteach clinicians and then patients that, um, that language, while it may sound simple and easy, it really doesn't help us understand the, 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 the effects of stress, um, which obviously, as we know, really affect the brain and how the brain really interprets that information, really telling the adrenal glands and a whole bunch of other parts of our body how to deal with stress. And so, yeah, I think um, we've seen sort of a new wave of clinicians saying, okay, it's not the, it's not just about the adrenals. It's about the HPA axis. Obviously two of those, the H and the P, uh, the hypothalamus pituitary are in the brain and they are really controlling uh, the process. And, um, and of course there's so much more than just that. I mean, there's, and, and hopefully we can get into this. I'm actually trying to expand, you know, it took a while to expand people back from the adrenal to the HPA axis. And now I'm trying to make them understand the HPA axis beyond stress because it really does affect everything else. Okay. You just packed so much into that like little intro. And I'm so glad that you're diving first right into the controversy. But, you know, the way that you just described something like will stick with me forever and kind of change my perspective on it, which is that when you say HPA axis, like don't forget the H and the P are part of that too. And we do, we focus so much on the adrenal function when it comes to the HPA axis, but really dysfunction of the adrenal gland is only one and probably kind of a small aspect of HPA axis dysfunction. It's probably more often the H and the P, but yet we focus yeah, on by the far. adrenals. And, and I think there's a reason for that. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm, while I'm trying to correct these things, I also understand historically how some of these things happen. So, you know, because we measure cortisol, we assume we're, we assume that we're measuring the adrenal gland um, and its function. And really what we're measuring is the HPA axis is triggering of cortisol from the adrenal gland. So it, it makes sense why people think that that's that we're only measuring adrenal function, but really it's it's the best measure of the overall HPA axis function. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the ways I try to describe this to my own patients with all of the endocrine organs, whether it's ovaries or thyroid or adrenal is that it's like a parent-child relationship, right? You have the end gland is like the child and it's all of its actions are controlled by the signaling or the instructions from the parent. So, you know, if those instructions are getting mixed up, the child's going to have kind of a different outcome or output. You know, if you can't right. follow bad instructions and do a good job. Yeah. I mean, that works great unless the children act up on their own, which, you know, well, they happens once in a while, of course. <laughs> The other thing you talked about was like getting people to understand the HPA axis beyond stress. Can you speak a little bit to that before we kind of dive in a little bit more into evaluation of HPA axis? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we've spent so much time trying to understand cortisol and, you know, looking at cortisol and, and trying to get people to understand that, you know, the brain is um, basically cortisol is this modulating hormone. It, it's not just a stress reliever. It's, it's modulating all kinds of things. And if you really understand what's happening during a stress response, it is energy, energy management. And we talk about, you know, this whole f fight or flight, which it really isn't the HPA axis. That's the, you know, that's 
adrenaline and noradrenaline, which is another part of the adrenal gland. Um, and so that is, you know, survival within the moment, uh, within the next few minutes, you need to survive. The HPA axis takes probably a, a, like 30 minutes to kind of fully activate. And then it, it stays active and it's basically trying to manage glucose and other energy resources in the body, shutting off parts of the body that don't need to be uh, taking any energy from you and allowing you to rebuild and, and kind of stabilize yourself. Um, well, the reason that the HPA axis is doing that is because the HPA axis is doing that every single day. It is the manager of your energy, of glucose, of amino acids in some cases. It's managing your circadian rhythm, which is really important. Um, and so when I say that it's, it's, this is beyond the stress response, understanding how the HPA axis works and when stressors affect your HPA axis, it begins affecting your ability to manage glucose all day long. It affects your ability to uh, manage circadian rhythm, obviously all day long, or at least parts of the day. So when you start changing circadian rhythm, you might have 40 to 50% of your genes are expressed on a 24 hour rhythm. Well, if you start messing up when these genes are expressed, you no longer have the metabolic efficiency to deal with other things like you know, disposing of glucose and all these other things. So that's why we see this big connection between HPA axis dysfunctions that maybe originally are because of, you know, your stressful job or your, you know, other things that are going on in your life that are stressful, but all of a sudden it affects your circadian rhythm it affects your metabolism, it affects your risk for you go down the list, really almost every chronic disease, because now you're affecting every part of the cell's metabolism. And because almost every cell is managed circadianly, um, it is going to affect every, you know, it ends up affecting everything. And so that's why mm -hmm. stress affects everything. And in order to understand that, you need to understand the HPA axis is the manager of really all the body systems. And therefore, when you have to stop, it's the, the example I give is, when, you know, when everybody's going to work, busy, you know, six lane traffic, everybody's trying to get to work. And all of a sudden, an emergency vehicle has to come down the road. And what does everybody have to do? Everybody has to stop, pull off the road. And if there happens to be an accident ahead and the emergency vehicles are there for, for 30 minutes and you can't get off the highway, that's where you're going to be, 30, 40 minutes, whatever. Well, that's essentially what the HPA axis does. It says, okay, there's a major stressor. I need to stop building bone mineral density. I need to stop uh, you know, moving glucose into cells. I need glucose available in the brain. I need, I don't, I don't need you building bone right now. I need you to be doing, you know, what I need you to do to, to survive the next hours. Well, if, if that survival is really not a survival, it's just that I'm stressed out because me and my partner are arguing all day long, or I have financial difficulties, or my boss is really irritating me, or you name the situation. Um, if you have six or seven kids, you might have one of those. Mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden now, all of these things are on hold for hours every day, perhaps. And now bone mineral density begins lower. Your ability to dispose of glucose goes down, you become insulin resistant, and that, then that affects all of these cardiometabolic uh, effects. So, and, and that, then we can talk about how it affects the brain and memory. And you know, it just, it goes around the circle. There really isn't any cell that is gonna be benefited when you have to use the HPA axis on a regular basis 
to deal with emergencies which aren't metabolic emergencies. These are a lot of these are perceived uh, mm -hmm. stressors which aren't can't be fixed metabolically, but the body doesn't know that, so it 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 tries to do that metabolically. So it's the emergency vehicle that's on the road that you're sitting there waiting. How long is this going to get? Well, that's what your liver is doing, saying, well, you know, when is this thing going to resolve so I can get back to what I normally do, which is to help this person, you know, survive. Yeah. I think this concept that you've just laid out is going to really reframe the way that people think about cortisol, the way that listeners think about cortisol. Because I think that just culturally, we think like cortisol equals stress equals bad. And what I'm hearing right. you say is like, no, actually cortisol is critically important for every different function in our body. Like you said, like every cell has receptors. It impacts every system of the body, right? So if it, if it is in regulation mode and it's just not able to behave properly because it's being triggered inappropriately or too much without reprieve, then we start to see resource diversion causing the long-term chronic disease that we associate with stress. Is that a good summary? Right. Yeah. And I think the, the, other, the other thing that we need to add to this is the HPA axis isn't just fixing things in the moment. It has a memory of the history of your stressful events. So oh, cool. cortisol is a very powerful hormone, as you know, and eventually expressing high levels of cortisol cause the brain to realize that this is not going to help long term. And so it begins down regulating uh, the, you know, down regulating the expression of cortisol in certain situations and cells become cortisol resistant in some cases. So over time, the body begins trying to resist the negative effects of cortisol. But by doing that, it, it dulls the circadian benefits of cortisol and some of these other, other things that are happening. And so some tissues are going to respond differently. And that's why obviously some people are more vulnerable in one tissue than another. So that's why a stress-related disease for one person may affect, you know, some sort of metabolic issue, liver issue, another person it may be, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, memory or, you know, neurological issue. Other people, it may be an exacerbation of, you know, an autoimmune condition. So it really has different vulnerabilities in different people, but it's really driven by that sort of process where there's a down regulation over time or, uh, you know, in some cells and of course at the brain level that can reduce cortisol. And you can have a person with low cortisol levels that are, that is still being affected, of course, by the stress response. Yeah, that's wild. And and how much, like, how impactful is it? How meaningful is the impact when it comes to people's health? Well, I think, I mean, I think it, yeah, that's a big question. I think yeah. um, in some people it's probably huge. And and the one thing that I've, I'm very interested in and, and it's very challenging to look at is what a lot of people call early life, you know, early life stressors, um, stressors, even in, in utero or at infancy, um, can have permanent effects on mm -hmm. the HPA axis. And so there's a lot of people connecting sort of early life stressors with obesity and risk for type 2 diabetes because you already set the HPA axis sort of behind. It's already adapting to stressors before it can do anything. And then by the time some of these uh, kids are teenagers, they're, they're already being affected by this. They, they've got elevated cortisol levels. Um, they've got metabolic syndrome, these kinds of things. So I think yeah. it's some, some, some people it's, it's much more than others. And, you know, we can talk about coping mechanisms and other things as well, but uh, there's a lot of different, you know, genetics involved as well. 
Yeah, I've seen some of that data and it's really fascinating. Like the epigenetic imprinting that happens in utero, you know, when a mom is under a lot of stress. There was one interesting study too that I saw where women with pregnant women with anxiety were their children were monitored and they looked at women who had anxiety and were untreated and what happened to the HPA axis in their children. And then they looked at women who took SSRIs or other anti-anxiety medications, reported feeling better during pregnancy, not being as symptomatic. Their children had no discernible improvement over the control group. So the thing that was so interesting to me about that was even the symptomatic management with pharmaceuticals didn't change the outcome on right. the offspring because the cortisol is probably still surging. You know, the right. It, right. Still it, it sort of masked her symptoms, but it didn't really change the underlying physiology. Exactly. Yeah. It really is a, you know, a real reason why in pregnancy, it's a great time to work on some of the, you know, behavioral things that can really help to yeah. Yeah. manage stress and, you know, not like pregnancy is not a stressful time, <laughs> but <laughs> it can be for sure. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about like testing. So what is the value that comes from providers testing the HPA access through, you know, various salivary methods, urine methods, right. et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's been a lot of development. Of course, originally this was done typically in, you know, blood levels, um, which I would say is, is only helpful in the extremes if you, if you're taking blood levels at the, or, or if you're, or if you're somehow, you know, getting them minute by minute, um, that could be helpful, obviously in research settings. Um, and the 24 hour urine has been used for a long time to measure sort of, you know, large changes, um, either low or high levels of cortisol, but really what transformed the, in my opinion, what transformed the, the stress related research was the ability to do saliva. And, and so that's been probably the mainstay within the research community in stress related research is using salivary cortisol. And it's obviously for various reasons, it's easy to collect. Um, it represents even, even a, a slight lag from what's in the blood, because obviously it has to go from the blood to the saliva, but it's acceptable it's lag for most people. Um, and, and so we know a lot about that data. So there's been, oh, probably the vast majority of data has been done with saliva. And now it's, as you guys well know, that it's been used, you know, in clinical settings for, for a couple of decades now. Um, for a long time, and in this, this is one of the things that surprisingly, uh, I never really intended to, to revolutionize this, but I maybe just because I wrote about it and was concerned about it and maybe shined a light on it um, for a long time, a lot of the companies that were doing salivary cortisol, providing these to clinicians and patients, I would say they were doing it, they were all doing it sort of copying each other, but they mm -hmm. didn't necessarily go back to the literature in the from the mid 90s to the early 2000s and say, okay, well, what has advanced in research in the use of salivary cortisol? And so basically all I did essentially was shine the light on that. And it was, as you know, anytime you try to change a group of people, uh, it was difficult. A lot of them didn't want to change until eventually there was this trickle effect. And then it kind of um, uh, actually somewhat after I wrote my book and exposed really all the labs to the same information at the same time, I think that finally was sort of the watershed moment for most of the labs, including uh, you guys, um, to begin doing this, this idea of taking the diurnal rhythm 
mm-hmm. which is essentially where you take it throughout the day, as you know, uh, from morning to evening. And what I learned was the instructions and the way that people were collecting that first morning cortisol was so in inaccurate or um, there was so much fluctuation in when a person could take it. For instance, some people would say, you know, take between six and 8 a.m. Well, if you have a job that starts at six o'clock and you get up at five and you take it when you get to work at, you know, or in your first break at work at seven o'clock, that really isn't the same thing as somebody waking up and then taking it within 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's one of the reasons why I believe that there was a a lot of individuals that were diagnosed with low cortisol levels, because as you know, the sum total of your daily cortisol, most of it comes from the morning. Mm -hmm. So if you don't catch that morning near the peak, um, you will pretty much add up to being low cortisol for the sum for the day. So I think there was a, probably a decade or more where all these people were, I think were overdiagnosed with low cortisol levels, hypocortisolism. And so that's why one of the reasons, I think one of the reasons why adrenal fatigue became so popular is because it looked like everybody had low cortisol levels. I think now that we're more appropriately looking at realizing that we need to measure very particularly the cortisol awakening response, what we call the CAR, it sometimes has different names, but the, the CAR or the CAR, where we can measure right when you wake up, and then we can measure usually 30 to 40 minutes later, we get the peak of that and then, it, and then it'll come back down. And then we also want to see the rest of the day. We want to make sure that it continues to go down and is lowest typically right before you go to bed. Um, and so really combining those two together and mm-hmm. probably in the early 2000s, mid, mid, let's say 2010, um, it became you started seeing in the literature, not only the use of car, which had been used really since about 2000, um, mostly the cortisol awakening response had been, was being used as the primary um, cortisol uh, biomarker for stress-related research. And then you started seeing them adding the car with the diurnal, which I think is the better way to do it. Um, And so Essentially, what I did was I shined the light on that and I said, this is what we should be migrating to this. And as you know, um, that I think has transformed a lot of the clinical way that uh, cortisol um, is now being used because it's now available. You know, what These tests weren't available because nobody was providing them and it required you know changes in um, kits and things like that. And, and I can say now that almost all of the labs have have kind of moved in that direction. Yeah, we offer both. You know, we have the Dutch Complete, which is a urine-only test, which has its own advantages, like just one sample type. Well, I'll mention urine here in a minute, but I'll... Yeah, uh, you can't obviously do a car in urine because urine is, you know, hours before you see anything in urine. So the Dutch Plus adds saliva so you can capture the car. So for listeners who are new to Dutch testing, you know, if you want to do what Dr. Williams is talking about, you'd want to do a Dutch Plus where you can get those first three samples within the hour. Um, right. It is stressful to have to take those samples, make sure that you set the timer on your phone, get it at the right time. Yeah. But I mean, it's really important um, because what the cortisol awakening response does, and it, I mean, we can get into the technical part of it slightly, but as the brain um, is producing more ACTH, which just comes out of the pituitary, that's what tells the, the adrenal gland to produce cortisol. 
as you are, let's say from midnight or maybe two o'clock till the time you wake up, ACTH is going up. It's anticipating your awakening. It's anticipating your circadian um, waking. Um, and, but at the same time, the hypothalamus has a direct link to the adrenal gland, direct innervation. And it basically is putting a break on the adrenal gland and say, okay, I know you're seeing ACTH, but don't give too much cortisol. I mean, it, cortisol is going up. If you're measuring cortisol, it's going up, but it's not going up as dramatically as you'd think. So it's coming up, it's coming up, it's coming up, but it's not responding to the ACTH as much as you would expect because the, the, the brain is actually putting a break signal on that. And then as soon as you, as soon as you, obviously it's, it's linked with the timing. So let's say you wake up at 6am, you wake up at 6am, you, your eyes open and all of a sudden your, your optic nerve sees light and that sends a signal to the part of the hypothalamus and that then lets off the break. And all of a sudden the ACTH that's already there plus more ACTH occurs and you get this, this spike of cortisol. And the spike of cortisol is what we, that's what we call the cortisol awakening response. That's why it's, it's related to awakening. You will get it if you take a long enough nap, but typically mm. if you don't take a very long nap, you won't get that in the afternoon. If you take a really long nap, you'll see a little blip of a, a CAR. Um, but it's really tied to that circadian connection and this change in cortisol and that circadian blip. So let me just stop there for a minute. So the, in the morning, you make the most cortisol. That's that peak that you see there. But also at the very same time, your body has the least sensitivity to cortisol. Okay. So, and it has to do with actually glucocorticoid receptors there, they get acetylated. So there's this, okay. this modification of the receptors. So why is that? Why is that the case? So obviously you, it's a, it's a way to modulate this whole thing. But what is that peak of cortisol doing in the morning? It's then sending a signal, a circadian signal to all of the cells in the body, time to wake up. It's wake up time. The brain is awake. You need to wake up because this person theoretically is going to probably start eating. They're going to probably start being active. They're going to start, you know, they're, they may encounter, uh, you know, other things in life, they're going to, you know, the t body temperature, all these, all these things that, that need to be working, need to start working. And so that is the, that is the signal up to the body that we're awakening. And so, um, the, the, the cells actually, ironically, we, we, again, this is one of these technical things. The cells actually know the difference between a circadian signal from cortisol and a stress signal from cortisol. Hmm. It actually looks differently cool. by this, by the pulsatility, by the little fluctuations of how it comes out, because it doesn't come out in one, even though we measure it in saliva, it actually is coming out in little bits of pulses. And that actually can be, that actually be, can be differentiated at the cell level that this is a circadian versus a stress signal. That's really cool. I love understanding the physiology behind, you know, what triggers that release and kind of that yeah. timing. That's really, really neat. So we have the kind of the salivary curve, the diurnal curve plus the car in some tests. And I know there's a lot of other ways to assess HPA function too. Like with the Dutch test, we have urinary metabolites that kind of gives you like an overall picture. We have cortisol clearance rate as another factor that kind of comes into literature. What are some of the other markers that you think providers maybe don't know that much about that should be looking at it 
a little bit more? Well, I think, I mean, I think that you're, you know, you guys are doing some of the, the pioneering work and trying to develop, you know, what are the connections between. So obviously one of the reasons that urine isn't as precise as far as the timing goes is obviously, you know, you're not, your, your bladder is only collecting urine over a couple hours. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's really kind of a, a, like what happened over the last several hours since you last um, voided the bladder. Um, so you can't get that pre- precision, but you, what you can look at, as you guys know, are the metabolites changes in um, what we call cortisol to cortisone ratios. So that there's, um, it's kind of a, a prediction of what's going on, maybe in fat tissue or other tissues in the body, um, the other metabolites. And so, um, like I said, you guys are looking at pioneering, looking at what are the relationships between the the absolute values and the ratios of those those metabolites and things like obesity or other factors. So I think that's that's a growing area of of knowledge. Um, there isn't that many other biomarkers, to be honest with you. One that's kind of interesting. Uh, some people have used um, secretory IgA. Interestingly, yeah, I've been hearing um, about that. And um, we know that even though it's not specific to a, a specific antibody, we know that stress reduces secretory IgA. Um, and so looking at that, there's there's a number of other experimental ways of looking at this, um, but there's not really that many other biomarkers. We can't really look at ACTH. It's very difficult. We can't look at CRH, which comes out of the hypothalamus, which is what we'd like to look at. There are some other factors. Um, people have thought about hair, cortisol, um, there's other other things that people are looking at. Um, hair actually is interesting, but I think needs to be looked at a little more carefully because interestingly, this is another kind of one of these aha moments. Um, the skin, our skin has its own HPA axis, meaning it doesn't have a hypothalamus pituitary, but <laughs> yeah. skin tissue can make CRH, which comes out of the hypothalamus. Skin tissue can make ACTH and skin tissue can make cortisol. Wow, Doesn't what triggers requ- the production of those? Is it that's a good or- question? So mm-hmm. that's that's the. I mean, this is sort of a mystery. It's probably the fact. Um, so this is my other. Again, let me go. Let me expand this one step. What's that? Yeah, I'm like I'm temperature. I'm trying to think that. Through. Well, like, is it well localized no, stressors stress, in the tissue? Stressors, various stressors yeah. in the cells. So if you think about the HPA axis, now let's ask, say, as a stress responder, what is it? It's a surveillance system. It's a surveillance system between us and our internal environment and us and our external environment. We look at, you know, if somebody's coming at you with a stick in their hand, you know, is this a baseball player who's going to let you sign, is going to sign a baseball bat or is this guy going to hit you? You know, Mm -hmm. so your brain has to figure out pretty quickly, is this a stress? Um, So that's a surveillance system. Well, the skin is a surveillance system. It's basically, it's tethered to the outside environment and it has to tell you right away hot, cold, uh, pain, whatever. And so for whatever reason, it has its own system. And the question is how much, how often is it being used and what is it being used for? We don't know. This is a very new area of science. Interestingly, the immune system, the immune system can produce CRH, mast cells, Mm -hmm. and a few other uh, cells. That makes a lot of sense Um, because, you know, again, when the body's under stress, that's one of the kind of areas that you would imagine that sensing could happen. And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the immune system, what is it? It's a surveillance system. Mm-hmm. And then the other area that has a lot of uh, CRH and CRH receptor overlap is the GI tract, which you'd imagine. I was going to guess also, that. 
It's yep. an environmental, it's, it's a, it's an interface with our environment. So, you know, so when we start looking at these kinds of things, we see overlap. And so I think there's going to be more development of biomarkers. The reason I say, um, the hair is interesting is, is that we don't, we, we believe that it's blood cortisol that's getting into the hair, but what if it's, what if some skin cortisol is getting in there and, you know, that's measuring, you know, something that's coming out of the skin that could be interesting, but at least we, we need to know what's the, con what's, what's, what is contributing to that yeah. before we, before we like analyze and, and decide what it is. But there is clearly a, a connection between hair cortisol, for instance, and cardiovascular risk and these kind of things, but we just don't know how to use it in clinical practice mm. in my view yet. Now, when they look at the cortisol that's being made in, you know, let's say extra adrenal sites, do those all enter circulation so that any testing would kind of capture the pool or do they know that if it enters general circulation? Um, you'd imagine no. it probably would. And right? well, I mean, we don't know if it's, we don't know if how much is even produced. So we don't know from a level mm. produced what's interesting. And, and so the other thing that we'd like to, I'd like to measure um, is DHEA and D or DHEA sulfate or either one. Or I was going to ask you about like that. that. Yeah. And this is a little more complicated because we don't know, we don't have as much, certainly not as much data as we have with cortisol, but one of the interesting things um, about, so DHEA um, from people who aren't aware, obviously when you're, when you're born, you basically don't make much, you don't make really any DHEA until you're about seven or eight years old, you start making it and it begins growing and peaking out in your early twenties, maybe into your thirties, if you're lucky. Uh, and then it starts going away. And so, you know, when I first got hired, you know, when I first got in this industry back in the mid nineties, you know, the idea was if you could give somebody DHEA to the level of a 30 year old, you basically, you know, they're going to solve all the problems, all their aging mm -hmm. would go away. turns out that didn't work. Um, and, but DHEA is a counter-regulatory hormone to cortisol. It counterbalances almost everything that cortisol does on the one side, DHEA comes back and kind of balances out afterwards. If you, in, in normal, healthy individuals, when you, let's say when you exercise, you go out and you're going to do a, a vigorous exercise. If you're healthy, your cortisol levels will rise. It's one of the reasons why if you're doing salivary cortisol testing, you, sh you shouldn't do it, you know, probably within an hour or two of having done a vigorous exercise, unless you want to measure that it's going to look like a, it's going to increase the peak there. But if you, if you look carefully right after the cortisol peak in most healthy individuals, will be a DHEA peak because it's going to then begin repairing the various things that cortisol is, is catabolizing to get your energy back. DHEA comes and then be, repairs that. So like I talked about, you know, cortisol depletes bone mineral density, DHEA, you know, triggers increased bone mineral density. And we could probably talk about almost everywhere one works, the other one comes. So knowing somebody's cortisol levels in relation to their DHEA levels can also give you an idea if their, let's say, HPA axis is being stressed more than it should be for their age and whatnot. And so you can look at that. And of course, DHEA needs to be measured on an age and a sex related, uh, you know, because they change on male and female yeah. and based on age. So it's something that you guys are measuring, I know, and you're probably giving, you know, all kinds of different ratios. The one interesting thing is, well, two interesting, there's probably a lot of interesting things about DHA, but the couple that I'll mention that make it kind of challenging, something I'm very interested in is are the animal models that we use for cortisol, mostly rats and mice and these kind of things, 
they do not make DHEA in their adrenal glands. So it makes it very difficult to study this method they, they, they produce that from their gonads. Because humans do, just for people that if you're not aware, humans do. Yeah. Different part of the adrenal gland. So the other thing is there, there's a portion of the adrenal gland that produces DHEA that's very active in the fetus. It goes away at birth and doesn't come until you're seven or eight years old. Now, remember, we talked about early life stress. If you're under seven years old and you have an early life stressor, you have no DHEA on board to block that cortisol. Mm. So I think that's one of the reasons why this early life stress becomes so problematic is because the brain doesn't have a, a buffering mechanism and often will counter-regulate by down-regulating or modulating cortisol sensitivity other ways. Um, the other thing is our brains make DHEA. And they also make pregnenolone and things like that. So um, this is another whole nother area, which again, we don't know. Does the brain DHEA circulate in the blood? Does it get from the brain back to the blood? We don't, there's all kinds of things we don't know. And I've, I've actually had conversations with some of the leading experts in um, steroidogenesis, which is the, the synthesis of steroid hormones. And this is a virtual black box. They really don't know much about what goes on in the brain and the production of these steroid hormones, how many of them get into the blood, what do they do, how do they regulate, whatever. So it's it's we're just beginning to understand how complex the, the cortisol DHEA world is when it comes to regulating our stress. And, and then, you know, adding endocannabinoids and adding, you know, all these other things that that affect um, and, um, neural hormone, you know, neurosteroids and neural hormones and, and neurotransmitters. And, you know, you start adding all of these layers on, especially as the brain is, is, uh, being affected by all of them and modulating your perception of stress. You can imagine how difficult it is sometimes to measure and to do research in this area. So that's one of the reasons why we're frustrated, why we shouldn't it be so simple to connect depression or anxiety or, you know, PTSD or whatever to a, a simple answer. Um, and the answer is no, it's not as simple as we'd like to think because there's so many layers going on there. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because like you'd said, the majority of the research was like in the nineties was really when the research started. And before that, and actually when I was in school, even the idea of the adrenals having an impact on physiology was controversial, like not well accepted in conventional medical communities. So during my career, there's been tremendous change because now there is at least some data and there is a general recognition of HPA axis dysfunction. And we hear even conventional providers start to think about it. So we're early in research. It sounds like we have a lot of work right. to do to really truly understand right. how to um and, you know, and I don't want to throw I don't want to throw the endocrinologist under the bus, but I would say that one of the difficulties has been the endocrinology community has not recognized anything that's not a diagnosed disease. They have just kind of like Cushing's it or off. Addison's. Yeah. They, right. So so if it's not Cushing's, not Addison's, if it's not something that is diagnosable, then basically it's it's a non-entity. And slowly yeah. that's changing. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the pushback of adrenal fatigue and that kind of nomenclature led them sort of on a crusade against that. Um, but I think, you know, if you go back even to Hans Salier's work, we're talking, you know, 1940s, 1950s, you know, it's been recognized that even these non-diagnosed 
chronic stressors affect, you know, he, he looked at, you know, the immune system. He looked at uh, the gut. He looked at, you know, he, you know, traditional kinds of things that were happening and it was a dysfunction. Litter across. size too, right? Like as a mechanism for fertility, wasn't that? Yeah. I mean, it, it affected everything, yeah. but the one, the three things yeah. he mentioned, mentioned uh, or measured was ulcers in the gut, um, hypertrophy of the adrenal gland and, um, and shrinking of the thymus the three areas mm -hmm. that he looked at. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a lot of work to do and, and I really, I could spend another hour talking about this and actually we should probably have you on for a part two, because I feel like there's so much more to talk about and you have such a great, you know, amount of wealth of knowledge to share. So thank you so much. Um, I think just in wrapping up, is there anything else you feel like well, actually, let me just ask a different question. When it comes to people wanting to learn more, because clearly there's a lot more to learn, what are the best resources out there? Are there books, your book? Yeah. Where can people well, go to kind of get more up-to-date information on this? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I'll promote my book, I guess, because I, Please I, do. I, the, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote the, uh, in 2015, I wrote the first edition, uh, Stress in the HPA Access and Chronic Disease Management, and they can get it on my website, pointinstitute.org. Um, but I, the, it, it's been updated in 2020. So we, we spent quite a bit of time actually updating the, putting the second edition out because there's, there was some changes, including, you know, the laboratory changes and whatnot that occurred in those five years. So, um, other than that, there's really, I, I don't know of any other people that have written a book to try to explain this to sort of an mm -hmm. integrative medicine, um, functional medicine approach that I know of. Um, I was, I was actually able to to write the chapter on this for the integrative medicine textbook for Rakel in the, on the fifth edition that came out last year. Um, doesn't have, it is a, it's a very thin summary of my book. Cause it's, it's like one tenth the size or not, mm -hmm. not even maybe. Um, so, and then, you know, keeping in the literature, I think, you know, um, precision analytic and, and you guys are doing great job educating. And so Thank I think you. that that's, I mean, I think that's where you, uh, where a lot of this is happening or the labs have to educate because they have the, they have the uh, information that's coming out, the publications, obviously the literature, you know, reading the literature, but uh, you know, there's so many things to keep up on. It's really, that's not the best way to do it. So um, I, you know, without being gratuitous here, I think my book is probably the best way at this point to get all the, that's great. And we'll put a link to the, your book in our show notes so that listeners, okay. if you want to visit the episode page, um, you can get a direct link to get Dr. William's book. It is extremely comprehensive. Um, the other one that comes to mind for me that is written more for consumers, but I think really shines a light on the importance is um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Zapolsky. Right. And I think that's pretty outdated at this point. I don't think he's done another edition. I think conceptually it helps, topic. though. I mean, if, if you want a kind of a, a philosophical understanding mm, of how exactly. stress affects, I mean, that, that's a classic. Uh, right. But it is probably 15 years old by now, I think. Right. But for like a medical approach or really understanding the physiology, yeah. your book is tops for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun and hopefully we can woo you back to talk some more. Sure. I'd love that. I would love to come back. We are so glad you joined us today for this in-depth conversation. If you want to learn how Dutch testing can help you profoundly change your patients' lives, visit us at dutchtest.com slash providers. There, you can become a provider and gain access to exclusive hormone education, like our new Dutch interpretive guide and the Mastering Functional Hormones testing course, 
a self-paced online course designed to help you become a hormone expert. If you enjoy listening to the Dutch podcast, please help us spread the word by commenting and sharing the show on your favorite streaming app. Also stay connected with us by following at Dutch test on Instagram and Facebook, where you'll find even more news, education, and provider resources. Thank you again for joining us today. Come back next week for more.